Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Lay the weight upon the Lord, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you that we have the privilege and opportunity and freedom to gather together to study your word today. We thank you for this nation, for the freedoms that we have, for the privilege that we have to live in a nation that has such a heritage in uh, biblical truth. Father, we pray that we might not uh, treat this lightly. This is a tremendous uh, advantage, tremendous privilege, tremendous opportunity And we never know how much longer we may have these freedoms and this ability to study your word and to uh, apply it so consistently. Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to understand the things that we study today. We pray that we might uh, be able to think these things through, that under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we might see how these things apply in each of our own lives. And again, Father, we continue to pray for our nation for our president, for both uh, military and civilian leadership. Pray that you would give them wisdom, skill, insight in uh, the decisions that they make. We pray that you might uh, foil the plots and the plans of the enemy, and that in this war against radical Islamic terrorists, that you would continue to protect us, uh, despite the fact that these people would seek to destroy us and do so much harm. We pray also that you would continue to protect the nation Israel and watch over them. Now, Father, as we study your word today, may we be sensitive to what God the Holy Spirit is teaching us. We may be challenged by these things as we press on to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we, as we approach the end of our study in 1 Corinthians, we are in 1 Corinthians 16, but we are taking a slight diversion in studying an important doctrine that's really embedded in these verses from about verse 5 down to verse 12. As Paul talks about what he plans to do and what he hopes to accomplish, where he is about to go, we see that underneath all of what he says is an understanding of the doctrine of decision-making. How do we plan? How do we uh, make decisions in life that glorify God? How does He guide and direct us? Many times when we're uh, in life, situations that are particularly weighty, 
are significant. We're making decisions that we know will uh, affect the rest of our life. That's when we get really focused on how to know the will of God. And people think about different ways to know the will of God. And we have a tendency to always seek to justify decisions because, well, God spoke to me. Or we had some sort of inner light or a sense of peace. But none of these, as we saw last time, are talked about in the Scripture. Even unbelievers can go through a period of uh, agitation and uh, debate over a particularly tough decision, make a decision, and have a sense of peace. But is that, what God, is that this necessarily the Holy Spirit? Well, not with an unbeliever. But in believers, we do the same thing. And it is typical in many places where people teach the will of God, where they emphasize this sense of, uh, you'll hear people talk about a still, small voice, which is a term that, that comes out of uh, the episode with Elijah. But once again, that is special, under the category of special revelation. The term special revelation is a term that refers to God objectively communicating to a believer. And we believe that special revelation ceased at two different times in history. It ceased in about the 5th century B.C. when God quit communicating to the prophets of Israel. And there was a period of silence from approximately the uh, about 420, 430 B.C. up until the uh, birth of Jesus Christ. No special revelation, no appearance of angels, no prophecy, no communication. The heavens were silent. Then again, with the close of the canon of Scripture in approximately 95 A.D., God is silent again. And when there is no special revelation, the issue is making decisions based on the doctrine that's in your soul, not based on God particularly... uh, giving some sort of insight, some sort of special sign as to what you should do or what you should not do. And as I've said, in in evangelicalism, there's usually two different approaches to the will of God, or primarily two different approaches. One emphasizes the fact that God has a specific plan and purpose for every decision in life. I mean, if you really take that position to its conclusion, that's what... That position articulates. The other position is, yes, indeed, God does have a plan and purpose for your life, but that's under the uh, guise of God's uh, God's uh, sovereign will, and He is going to guide and direct us, but He does it primarily through His Word, and, and then He does it through secondary sources. But... When it comes to knowing what God wants us to do in a particular decision, for example, if you're wrestling with buying a house, moving, a career choice, a career opportunity, uh, marriage, uh, any number of the major decisions, frankly, if you just start getting to, to concerned about the will of God when you hit the major decisions, you've pretty much failed the test. The issue is making those decisions on a day-to-day basis. And the, what we think of as the little decisions. And if you think about history, if you even ref- take some time to reflect on your own life, I'm sure you can look back and see that momentous events in your life actually turned 
on what may have been very uh, minor and what appeared to be insignificant decisions. You may have awakened one morning and decided to uh, go someplace on the spur of the moment, not thinking too much about the importance of the decision. And yet, wherever you went that day, you met somebody of significance, you made a decision, you made a contact, uh, something happened that day that if you had not been there in that place would not have happened. Yet that seems, as you look back on it, that seems to be a circumstance or event that, that changed your life. So we have to focus on not only the what appear to us to be the major consequential decisions, but the day-to-day decisions of life. And so the overriding issue is, are we in fellowship, number one? Number two, are we applying the doctrine that we know that's in our soul? Number three, is our motivation to serve God and to glorify Him? I mean, those are the top three questions. Am I in fellowship? Am I applying the word, the doctrine that I know that's in my own soul? And is my ultimate motivation to glorify God and to please Him in all that I do? And if that's your overriding motivation, if you can answer all three of those questions, yes then you will be operating within the will of God. If you're applying the doctrine that you know, and last time I went through various uh, various passages that show that the Scriptures give us certain specific statements of what God's will is. These are included within the imperatives, the positive commands, as well as the prohibitions in Scripture. That defines a parameter for us. And we can draw that as a circle. And this circle, as it were, uh, circumscribes the behavior that God expects of the member of the royal family of God. And inside the circle, we can include all of the commands of Scripture that are positive. Let's call them the thou shalts. And then outside, you have all the Scriptures, the thou shalt nots. So inside the Scripture, you'd have imperatives like pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all things, you know, family relationships, husbands loving your wives, wives being obedient to your husbands, uh, children honoring your parents, uh, employees being obedient to your employer. All of those are factors. You know, the decision that you're making should fit within those parameters and, and be able, and, and allow you to continue to be obedient to the Word of God in those issues. Then you have other statements outside the, the Word, issues that relate to, uh, criminality, uh, issues that relate to morality, uh, issue related to not walking according to the sin nature. Uh, these are all issues that are Prohibited for the believer. So, for many decisions that we make in life, it's pretty clear where God wants us. And we used a term last week to describe this. I called it the moral will of God. Or another term to describe this is the revealed will of God. And for the believer today, all of this relates to the revealed will of God, and you're not going to hear God speak to you. At least, uh, uh, as long as you're, you're, um, a sane and normal, you won't hear God speak to you. God's revealed will is given in the Scriptures, so that's why we need to know the Scriptures. We need to know the dynamics for the spiritual life. 
You need to understand what the what the Bible teaches. This means we need to make priorities in our life related to reading the Word of God on a regular basis so that we're constantly reminded of these things. The Holy Spirit uses uh, God's Word to teach us and to uh, keep those things at the front of our of our thinking. And then being in Bible class where we're constantly learning the Word, developing a framework of Bible doctrine through which we can evaluate situations and make make wise decisions. Started off last time, uh, now that we've talked about the moral will of God, by just defining three aspects uh, that theologians usually talk about when it comes to the will of God. And the first was what we call the sovereign will of God. And the sovereign will of God has to do with His decree in history. And this is sometimes referred to as the decretive will of God. And it also includes His permissive will. So this, this is God's, uh, part of God's will that allows the sinful acts of creatures during history. And nevertheless, God still works to override those decisions. Then the second category of God's will that we talked about was what we just referred to, His moral will or His revealed will. Sometimes this is called God's desired will. And then the third category is God's overriding will, so that we may make a decision out of our own free will and out of our own volition to do X, and God says, no, I'm not going to allow that to happen. And so God moves to prevent that and to put us where He wants us. And sometimes we haven't made a bad decision. We've, we've weighed all the factors and we've thought that God wants X and we make the decision X and God says, well, that was fine, but I'm going to override that and you're not going to be able to accomplish that. And it's not because we were wrong or be, we misread the signals or anything. Uh, sometimes we may want to do something that is very good, very profitable. Uh, perhaps we want to go, um, uh, uh, do something that would be very, very beneficial. It's not a moral issue or spiritual issue at all. I remember years ago, I made a decision, sort of felt like Jonah at the time. I made a decision to, that I wanted to go ahead and work on a master's degree in history. This was right after I got out of college. And as part of that, I had an opportunity to take a study tour to Europe, and I had always wanted to do that, and with a particular professor that I had studied under. And so I signed up for the trip, and it got to the point where uh, we had 12 hours left till the deadline, and nobody else had signed up for the trip. And I was tossing and turning. It was a tough decision. It was becoming a tough decision because every summer up to that point, I had worked as a uh, program director for Camp Penile, running uh, wilderness backpacking, whitewater canoe trips, that sort of thing. And they had not, this was like the middle of May, and they had not yet found somebody to take my place. And I had done this for four or five years, and frankly, I was a little tired of doing it and wanted to do something something different. And I didn't have any sense that one way or the other that God wanted me to do this or God wanted me to do that. But those were my options for the summer, was to go to Europe on a study tour or to uh, take high school kids on, on uh, wilderness trips. 
So I decided that the, at, by that day, I decided, well, nobody else had signed up, I guess. The Lord was overriding my decision, and it was, uh, I, I should go run trail camps again that summer, which I did. I made that decision that morning. That afternoon, 20 people signed up for the trip to go to Europe. <laughs> Felt a lot like Jonah. But see, that's, that's, that's how God works sometimes. It's not because I was making a bad decision or a wrong decision or had misread any signals. It was that if God has a particular thing for you to do, then God is going to work out the circumstances. And even if you make, a, make the, quote, wrong decision, God won't allow it to happen. And it's not an issue of divine discipline or something like that. It's just God's overriding will. So it's not a guessing game. I'm trying to demystify this. Some people get so caught up when they're making decisions. They're, oh, I just want to make the right decision. And then they make a decision. Here's another trap you fall into. You make a decision, and two or three years later, it just everything falls apart, or maybe even sooner. And I've seen people make decisions. They have a great job offer, and, and everything looks good, and, and they move halfway across the country the country and three months later the company that hired them goes into bankruptcy and they lose their job and they say, oh, I misread it, I made the wrong decision. No, that's not true. The, the assumption underlying that is that adversity, if I'm in a situation of adversity, it's not God's will. Maybe God's will was for you to be in that situation, so now you're going to have to trust God in a situation where you're across the country, you don't have the comfort zone of friends and family and, and uh contacts that you had before, and now you're in a position where you have to learn to trust God and you have to stand up on your own two feet spiritually, which might not have happened if you'd stayed uh, stayed back at home. So never judge a decision afterwards on the basis of circumstances. The opposite can be true as well. You can make a decision and things can turn out great and you can say, well, that must have been God's will. Not necessarily. There, if you just turn on the television, for an example, and watch all of these huge churches and, and ministries that appear to have tremendous amounts of resources, if you say, well, they're doing so well, must be God's blessing. Not necessarily. People can build all kinds of ministries and businesses and what appear to be successful lives in the energy of the flesh. And it doesn't count for anything in eternity. So don't make the mistake of judging a decision after, afterward on the basis of its results. A lot of times you may make a decision that appears to be tough. Think about the Apostle Paul going to Corinth and all of the grief that he suffered afterward, all of the suffering and adversity that Paul endured in the ministry. He could easily look at it and say, oh, if I went through all of this heartache, maybe it's not God's will. No, see, God's will can include all the heartache, all the adversity, all the negative. So the issue really is sticking with the Word of God and applying the Word of God, the doctrine from your own soul, and this approach to decision-making is generally termed the wisdom approach. It is learning how to make decisions from the framework of divine viewpoint in your soul. But see, there's the rub. You have to have divine viewpoint in your soul, and you have to go through a growth process of maturity 
by making decisions based on the doctrine you have in your soul. Because when the serious decisions come along, when the important decisions come along, if you don't, do not have a track record and a habit pattern which include prayer, application of doctrine, walking by means of the Spirit, then you're just uh, generally thrown on your own resources and you're probably going to end up making a decision uh, based on the flesh, justifying it through some sort of doctrinal rationale and end up uh, making a, a screwy decision from a position of weakness. Well, last time we looked at point number one, went over the term the will of God. Point number two, I pointed out some key verses on God's sovereign will. And those were, I'm not going to read them again, but just the references, Daniel 4.35, Proverbs 21.1, Revelation 4.1, Ephesians 1.11, Proverbs 16.33, Romans 9.19. Just another warning on Proverbs 16.33. The use of the lot is not a proper biblical means of decision-making. It is a general principle in Proverbs 16.33 that God is in control of the details of life. It is not saying that you need to use the casting of lots to make decisions. Point number three. God's decreed will is secret. We can't know it until after the fact. We learn it only by observing history. When you look back on things, obviously it was God's will for Adolf Hitler to come to power back in the 30s because it was God's permissive will. That was part of his decreed will. And we look back on other events in history, the election of certain politicians, the election of certain people as president, and we know after the fact that God is allowing this to happen. God allows uh, men to make choices, and when those choices are bad, then God allows the consequences of those choices to be worked out in history. Point number four. We can only know the specifics of God's revealed or moral will. That's all you can know is what God reveals to us objectively Knowing the will of God is not an exercise in learning how to read the subjective signs of your own emotional state. It's not based on liver quiver. It's not based on going off alone into the, into the mountainside, into the caves, and, and being engaged in contemplating your navel for a while until suddenly you have a flash of insight. A couple of uh, passages to, uh, on this, Romans 2.18 1 Thessalonians 5.18, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, 2 Corinthians 6.14. Point number five, we, conclude that, we concluded therefore that God's sovereign will included his moral will, but his moral will was not always his decree. In other words, God allows for our bad decisions from a position of weakness. He allows for us to make uh, sinful choices. And those results work out. But just because uh, that happens doesn't mean you justify it by saying, well, that must have been God's will. God Using God's sovereign will to justify your bad decisions is nothing more than rationalism and ultimately blaming God for the weaknesses of man. Point number six. Uh, I pointed out what I've already reviewed this morning that usually we become concerned about the will of God in the midst of some momentous decision. 
But God's will affects, to some degree, every decision we make. We need to make a decision from within that framework of Bible doctrine and walking by means of the Spirit. Point number seven, we are to do all things to the glory of God. So that means we look at every decision. You get up in the morning and you think, what am, I, what am I going to do today? I have to I have to eat. I have to manage my time. I have to go to work or go to school. I need to do these things in a way that glorifies God. I need to do all things to glorify God. So that means I'm going. that's going to affect how I do my homework. That's going to affect how I study. That's going to affect how I dress, what I read. It's going to affect my conduct, how I relate to people, how I relate to uh, cashiers at the supermarket, how I relate to uh, salesmen that call me and aggravate me on, on, on telemarketing calls. All of this has to do with the will of God. And so we pay attention to these things. Uh, we are to do all things to the glory of God. Point number eight. Since we can only know the specifics of God's revealed will, questions about the will of God can only relate to revealed information. God guides and directs us as we walk by the Spirit, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 concludes with, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's the operation of the faith rest drill. The object of the faith rest drill is what? Scripture. It's never faith in faith. You'll hear people say, well, I'm just going to believe that this will happen, or, or we just have to have faith. That's an empty faith. This is a faith in something, a faith that is directed to and has as its object specific promises of God's Word, specific principles of doctrine. We trust in the Lord with all our heart, that is, our thinking. See, there's a parallelism here between heart in the first strophe and understanding in the second. So this is not emotion. It's not trusting in the Lord with all of our emotions, but heart. The Hebrew word lev has as its primary meaning the thinking in the innermost part of the soul, the core of your soul. So trust in the Lord with all of your Thinking, that is, focusing your thought on Bible doctrine and on the promises of God's Word. And do not lean on your own understanding. In other words, as you go through the principles of problem solving and decision making, you're not thinking just in terms of overt circumstances or situations. You have to do that. You have to sit down and think in terms of what are the pros and the cons of this decision. What wisdom principles apply to the different aspects of these decisions? And then in prayer, you're asking God to give you guidance and direction in the process of weighing the facts. So we're not leaning or relying upon our own finite understanding uh, exclusively. This isn't excluding thought, reason, evaluation on your own, but it is saying that's not all there is to it. You don't know all the facts. I don't know all the facts. When I come to any decision, that's the, especially the weighty decisions, you don't know what the circumstances may be, what the consequences may be coming up. So you ultimately have a mentality of dependence upon God. In all your ways, acknowledge Him as our 
primary directive is to glorify God, and our primary motivation is to please Him, to apply doctrine, to focus on living a life that, that honors and glorifies God and it leads to spiritual growth, what's the end result? He will make your path straight. God's the one that will direct those decisions. So I think that if you're a believer and you're walking by means of the Holy Spirit and you are applying the Word and you are seeking counsel at times from those who are more mature, those who have perhaps gone down that road before, made similar decisions, and as you make those decisions, God is going to guide and direct you in that decision-making process, not in a way that you are aware of. But he is working behind the scenes to, uh, to guide and direct you through circumstances and other, other events. This brings us to point nine. Point nine really includes a, a lot of subcategories because I want to look at some different scriptural events. So for point nine, we'll just say scriptural examples of decision-making. Scriptural examples of decision-making. And what we're going to focus on here is that most of these scriptural examples of decision-making and knowing the will of God are examples where God is giving objective revelation. I want you to notice that as we go through this. The first two examples have to do with avoiding the will of God. These are the fun ones. So turn with me to the book of Judges. I want to look at these two examples because these are examples that are frequently used for teaching the will of God. Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. I remember years and years and years ago, before I was in seminary, I would uh, go to a Bible church in my neighborhood on Thursday nights because the assistant pastor there was a fairly solid guy and taught well. Plus, we had, we had kind of a college and career group. There were usually 50 or 60 there, and we had great volleyball games afterwards. Uh, I enjoyed the doctrine, but I also enjoyed the volleyball. And after a while, this guy left. He took a church in somewhere in North Carolina, I believe, and so this particular church was, was candidating a guy for the position. And they brought in a, a graduate of Dallas Seminary, and he taught a class on knowing the will of God, and it was based on, uh, and he went to both of these passages, and it was just a typical example of how people don't read the text. And you'll see this many times. People go to, go to Gideon, and they go to Jonah to know the will of God. But see, both Gideon and Jonah knew the will of God objectively because God appeared and spoke objectively to both of them. And instead of applying and obeying instantly the mandate of God, they tried to avoid the implications of God's mandate. So these are not examples of how to know God's will. They are really examples of how to avoid God's will. The situation, I'm, both of these are, I could spend days on each one, but we just want to hit the high points. This, the situation in Judges 6, which we studied several years ago, is a situation where they're going through that cycle uh, of, uh, of disobedience, and then God would bring a foreign power in that would conquer them, and they would be under the oppression of that foreign power for a while, and then finally the people would 
uh, repent, that is, change their mind. They would turn back to God, and then God would raise up a deliverer. So at this time, the Midianites were coming in, and this was a group of, um, of marauders, nomads who had come through, and, and they had conquered the land, and they were... Uh, they would come in every year during the harvest time, and just as they were taking in the harvest and filling up the barns, they would come in and they would steal all of the produce. So this was keeping the nation in a state of uh, poverty, in a state of, of uh, famine because of this. And so now it was time for God to deliver them. So the uh, Lord sent a prophet, verse Let's just start at verse 7. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites. This is what real repentance is. It's not uh, emotion. It's, it's not, um, uh, they're not feeling sorry for their sins. They're turning to God. Now, they may have that. That may accompany it. But that's not what repent means. It means to change your mind and to turn to God. So they turned to the Lord finally to deliver them. And the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice." So you see, the problem in Israel is they're outside of the will of God in the sense that they're walking in carnality. And they receive information from God, direct revelation. So it's in this context that God provides, now is going to provide a deliverer. Verse 11, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. So the angel of the Lord here, as we've seen in our studies before, is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. This is not an angel. This is the second person of the Trinity. This is uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, this is one of the key passages for understanding the identity of, of the angel of the Lord uh, in the Old Testament. And then we find Gideon. He doesn't seem to be what the uh, angel says. He's hiding out in the wine press, and he is uh, doesn't have a whole lot to do, so he's uh, a, 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 lot, a lot to protect himself from the Midianite hordes. So he is hiding away, trying to at least thresh out a little wheat for the family's survival. Verse 12, the angel of the Lord appears to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now, the last thing you see here is that he's a mighty man of valor. But I think the angel of the Lord is talking in terms of potential here and not what's actually taking place. Verse 13, Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? See, He's like the rest of Israel. He's more concerned with his problem and whining about it than the solution. And where are all of these miracles which our fathers told us about? In other words, if how, God's just deserted us, and he's whining and crying about what's been going on. Then verse 14 says, Then the Lord turned to him. Now you notice it doesn't say, Then the angel of the Lord turned to him. It says, The Lord turned to him. 
This tells us that the angel of the Lord is the Lord. This is one of the key passages to support that that doctrine. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And then Gideon says, Well, Lord, how can I, I save Israel? Verse 15. And the Lord tells him, I will be with you. And verse 16, you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. So Gideon doesn't say, God, what's your will for my life? God has already told him, go deliver the nation. I'll be with you. He has a promise so he can exercise uh, the faith rest drill. Now Gideon understands that that this is God and he is going to um, build an altar for, for to uh, the angel and... He is going to then uh, worship the Lord. In verse 24, we read, So Gideon built an altar there to Yahweh and called it, The Lord is peace. To this day it is still an Ophrah of the uh, Abizrites. Now, Gideon knows what God's will is for his life, but he's not sure he really wants to do this. He's a, a bit of a, a bit timid or at best a coward at worst. And he decides that he may have misunderstood the situation. This is really tough to go up against the mighty armies of the Midianites. And so he wants to clarify things. Actually, he just wants to avoid it. And this is the situation of putting out the fleece. You'll hear people say, well, maybe we can put out a fleece. This is where that idea comes from. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it's dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. See, he's not trying to find out if God will use him. He's trying to avoid the situation. He thinks that this is a pretty impossible thing to do, which reveals that he has a limited view of God's omnipotence. So he's not a man of great faith. Now, you'll see his name listed in Hebrews 11 as a man of faith. Doesn't that encourage you? See, God isn't putting men over there that didn't have flaws. I mean, these, these guys had great flaws, and we saw that when we made our study through, through Judges. So he puts out the fleece, and we're told in verse 38, when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water, but everything else was dry. Okay? Well, he's probably thinking, well, that worked. Maybe, maybe, maybe the, 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 the wool and the fleece just, just held on to that water and it already evaporated from the ground around or it was so dry the ground just absorbed the dew. Uh, we're going to give God a second test. So he tested again and he says, let it be dry on the fleece, but on the ground let there be dew. And again, it, God, of course, was in his patience with Gideon, just as he's patient with us, God, uh, the next morning, uh, wet the ground, but not the fleece. So Gideon had his confirmation. But Gideon's putting out the fleece wasn't a, 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 an approach to decide, to trying to find out how to, um, or, or what God's will was. God had already revealed it to him. Gideon was simply trying to avoid doing what God had told him to do. And you see, this is what happens often in life when we have really tough decisions or when decisions appear to be tough. 
is that down deep there is our, our own agenda at work, and that is in conflict with what we know to be the right thing to do at some level in our soul. And so rather than doing the right thing and the biblical thing, we try to avoid it. The same thing happens with Jonah. So you can turn with me over towards the end of the Old Testament to the section known as the Minor Prophets. It's that part of your Bible where the pages probably still stick together. To the book of Jonah, sandwiched in there between Obadiah and Micah. Jonah. Now, in verse 1, we're told, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... Now, we don't know a whole lot about Jonah. Jonah was a prophet in the northern kingdom. He lived during the reign of Jeroboam II, who was not a godly king. He was an evil king. And he lived at the beginning of the 8th century B.C., somewhere around 7... Uh, 90 to 775 uh, B.C. His ministry is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 29. He's from a small town called Gath-Hefer, which was just a few miles northeast of Nazareth. And he had a very successful ministry, and as a result of his ministry in the northern kingdom, there was a measure of prosperity in the northern kingdom. And if all we knew about Jonah was what was contained in 2 Kings 14, we would think that Jonah was a tremendous prophet that had a tremendous ministry. But all the prophets are just human like the rest of us, and they all failed. And we have the book of Jonah to tell us that Jonah also had some flaws. He was uh, part of his sin nature, was prone towards a little racial prejudice because he did not want to see the... um, ancient enemy of the Jews, saved. These were the Assyrians. God is demonstrating through Jonah that his grace was for both Jew and Gentile, and that there was no place for this sort of racial prejudice, even though these were traditional enemies who hated Israel and whose stated goal was the destruction of Israel. Not Not a situation too different today from the Arab terrorists. God's grace is just as available to them as it is to us. And as believers, we need to pray for their salvation and for the success of gospel ministries and missionaries that are taking the gospel into Islamic countries. And there are many things going on that we don't know too much about. And every now and then I get hints of this, but I know that there are men and women who have put their life on the line who are in Iraq, who are in uh, Iran, who are not there legally, but are in, in these countries giving the gospel, translating scriptures, preparing Bible studies for those Christians that are there. And we need to pray for these people. They're in Afghanistan, Tajikistan. They're in uh, many of these different places where if what they were doing was known, then their lives would be, uh, probably would be forfeit. Well, Jonah is told by God to go take the gospel to the national enemy. He says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness 
has come up before me. So Jonah is given what? Direct revelation. What's God's will for Jonah's life? God's will for Jonah's life is now to go to Nineveh. God is going to give Jonah specific direction related to God's what, what some will call God's geographical will. God wanted Jonah in Nineveh. Did God want Jonah in Nineveh his whole life? No. Before Jonah went to Nineveh, did God have a specific place for Jonah to be? Only in the northern kingdom of Israel. Whether that was up in the north near the Sea of Galilee or down in the south near the capital of Samaria, didn't matter unless at a point in time God said, okay, you need to take a message to the king. In other words, God doesn't always have a specific place for you to be. God's geographical will may not come into play except at certain times in a person's life. So that God does not always have a geographical will. There are times when, as far as God's plan for your life concerns, it doesn't matter whether you're living in Connecticut or whether you're living in California. The issue is how you're living in Connecticut or how you're living in California. But there may be times in your life and in my life when God wants us in a specific place. I think there are... There are uh, times when uh, uh, it doesn't matter. For example, every year I go over to Kiev. God has given me that opportunity, and so I've chosen to take advantage of it. I think that's a wise, profitable thing to do for the teaching and application of my gifts. But that's, I don't think that if I didn't do it, that God would discipline me for not doing it. God doesn't have that as a, as a specific thing for me to do. God, within the framework of my ministry, God gives me opportunities. And the test is, how am I going to take advantage of those opportunities as opposed to the fact that there's a specific for me, uh, place for me to be at every moment uh, of my time? And the same is true for, for each of us. Sometimes God has that specific place, though. And he will make it clear. It's not a guessing game. God's not trying to play some shell game with you, with your life, that, oops, I wanted you in, uh, in California, and you made a decision to settle down in Connecticut. Well, you'll just be out of my will for the rest of your life. God does not do that. He does not treat us that way. If God wants you in, in California, and you make a decision to go to Connecticut... Well, somehow, some way, God is going to create the circumstances that will make it impossible for you to stay here, and He will close doors, and He will open doors that will take you where He wants you to be, if indeed He wants you uh, to be there. So we see this with Jonah. Jonah, of course, is a story we're all familiar with. Jonah decided not to obey God. It wasn't a question of what is God's will or trying to find God's will. It was... For Jonah, avoiding God's will. And instead of doing what God said to do, Jonah rose up in verse 3 to flee to Tarshish. That would be in the area of Spain. Instead of heading east to Assyria, he decides to go west to Tarshish. He's going to get as far away from God as he can, or from the Assyrians as he can. Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now there's a little humor there. 
God is omnipresent. How does one flee the presence of God? So he went down to Joppa. He found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And of course, we know the story that the Lord brought up a, a severe storm out on the Mediterranean, which I understand can be quite severe. And they had to uh, lighten the load, and they were afraid they would lose their life. And finally, Jonah admitted that, that he was the problem. And so the sailors on the ship threw him overboard, and as soon as he did that, the, calm, the storm calmed down. And God sent a specially prepared uh, fish to pick up uh, Jonah and carry, carry him back to land. Notice it wasn't a whale. And there have been instances, incidentally, historically, where uh, people out on the ocean, seamen, have been swallowed whole by fish and have survived. There was a case that happened in the 19th century, and a man, a sailor, was overboard, and he was swallowed by a fish, I don't know the kind, swallowed whole, and when they uh, rescued him, he had spent a little time in the belly of the fish. When he came out, he was bleached white from the uh, uh, stomach acids. His hair was bleached white. His skin was bleached white. He was quite a sight. So imagine that. Here's Jonah. When he comes out of the belly of the fish after three days, he looks like an albino. His hair is bleached. His hair, his whole body, everything's bleached white. And he's quite a sight. And he would gain quite the attention when he walked through the streets of Nineveh uh, proclaiming the gospel. His very sight would gain their attention. So you see, no matter how hard Jonah tried to avoid God's geographical will for him, his revealed will for him, God worked through the circumstances without, without changing or going in and manipulating Jonah's will God put Jonah in the kind of circumstances that uh, channeled him into the right direction. And even though Jonah was operating in disobedience, I believe that if we as believers are operating, if we're filled with the Spirit, we're applying doctrine, and if we decide to go to place A instead of location B, that God will gently prevent us from ever getting into location A, and we'll get to location B. He'll make it clear. And if we are responsive to God, we'll usually pick up on it and say, well, the circumstances just aren't working out. So God guides and directs. We can't avoid His will. If He has a specific place for us, a specific time to do certain things, then we will be there. So don't worry about it. Don't think, get into this trap, this subjectivity of thinking somehow we miss the will of God. The key issue is our underlying attitude. And if we are filled with the Spirit, if we're applying doctrine, if our desire is to glorify Him in everything that we do, and to apply doctrine and to put ourselves in the place where we can have the most effective spiritual life possible, then God is going to... God is going to uh, uh, get us there. He will guide and direct. He will make our paths straight. Well, we'll come back next time and continue our study on knowing the will of God and making, deci- making uh, good decisions. And we'll get into the New Testament and look at a number of examples 
in the book of Acts how the apostles made decisions. Sometimes they made decisions based on God's revealed will. Other times they made decisions based on the fact that, quote, it seemed good to them at the time. In other words, God didn't speak to them. God didn't say, now this is what you need to do in this set of circumstances. They weighed the options. They looked at the doctrine and they made a decision out of wisdom and said, it seems good to us to do this. And that is where we are in many of our decisions. We just take the Word of God, we apply it, we pray about it, we commit the situation into the Lord's hands, and then we do what seems to be be the best decision based on all of the information available and uh, committed into the hands of God for Him to work out the consequences. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word this morning for the opportunity to realize that you do have a plan for our lives, you do have a purpose for our lives, and that plan and purpose is to grow to spiritual maturity, to demonstrate in our life the character of Jesus Christ, to honor and glorify you in time in relation to the angelic conflict, that we are to walk by means of the Holy Spirit, that we are to apply doctrine, and as we do that, and as we trust you under the principle of the faith rest drill, then you will make our paths straight. Father, we also pray this morning for those who may be here without uh, any uh, understanding of the gospel. They are unsure and uncertain about their eternal life. Father, we pray that they would take advantage of this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. You can know that you have eternal life by putting your faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The issue is not uh, impressing God with your goodness, joining a church, being involved in religious activity. The issue is simply uh, simply trusting in Him, putting your faith alone in Christ alone, realizing that He died on the cross for your sins, and that that death is all that is needed, believing in that, is all that is needed for your eternal salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us today with the things that we've studied. Give us a comfort from the promises of your word that we may press on to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.